Morning, all. You guys can turn in your Bibles if you have them to Luke chapter 20. And uh, we're going to read 27 to 40. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection, and they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die any more, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised... Even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this particular story, Lord, and I pray that you would... uh, Open our hearts to receive whatever you have to teach us about this, Lord, and what this teaches about the glory of your resurrection and really just the glory of your Son. Um, Help us to receive that, Lord. We pray these things in his name. Uh, I heard a joke from a customer of mine a couple weeks ago. It goes something like this. There's an elderly couple, Bill and Susie, and they're in their 80s. They've been married for 60 years, and all they've done for those 60 years is fight. Now, uh, Susie dies, and she gets to the pearly gates, and, uh, and, and Peter's there, and he says, welcome to heaven. She says, well, it's good to be here. What do I have to do to get in? And uh, he says, it's very easy. All you have to do is spell love. This is obviously not a very reformed uh, joke. She says, well, that's easy, L-O-V-E. And he says, very good, you're, you're, you're in. Um, he says, now, by the way, I actually have something to go take care of, but as you've seen, dealing with the gate is actually a very simple process. Would you mind watching it for me for a couple of hours, and I'll be back? And she says, okay. And so she, she sits down. Peter wanders off. And who's the first person that comes up to the gates but Bill? And she says, Bill, what are you doing here? And he says, Susie, I was so lonely without you. I had nobody to fight with, and I, I couldn't take it anymore, so I decided I would die and come up here to be with you. And uh, he says, you know, what do I have to do to get in? And she says, well, it's very simple, Bill. All you have to spell is Czechoslovakia. (laughs) That's kind of messed up. Um, Most of us hope to see each other again in heaven and in the resurrection. I like to think uh, that George and I have a pretty good marriage, and I like to think she'll be happy to see me, especially if, as Jesus says, I'll be like the angels. Angelic me will be so much easier to love. Um, But what would it take for any meeting in heaven to be awkward? We often think about who we'd like to meet in heaven. 
have you ever thought of the opposite? Is there such a thing as people you hope you don't meet in heaven? I mean, if you see it, like, what's, I see a book in the checkout aisle sometimes in the store, you know, the five people you'll meet in heaven. I've never read it. I have no interest. But it's like, you know, can you imagine writing a book with the opposite title? I hope that's not something you dwell on. Um, but the Sadducees have nominated a pretty good hypothetical in that department, a woman who has legitimately married seven brothers. It's not like she divorced some or some were abusive or left her, cheated on her. As far as we know, they're seven decent men, and they're all brothers. And suddenly, she sees them all waiting for her at the proverbial pearly gates. What do you do? Who do you run to? Um, it's sort of like Ingrid Bergman's dilemma in Casablanca. And if you don't know that movie, fix that. Come on, people, get some culture. Uh, the Olympics are over. Watch it today. Um, now, the Sadducees aren't asking in good faith, but Jesus shows how to answer a bad faith question from an unbelieving antagonist and how to answer someone who isn't really looking for answers. So what do you do with seven husbands? Some of you ladies are probably smiling at that. Um, sure, it's just a hypothetical, and maybe it's even a stupid one. Maybe it's better to start with that. Who would come up with such a stupid hypothetical? Uh, what kind of people are so bent on tripping up Jesus that they come up with such a ridiculous story. Who goes out of their way like that? Who are these Sadducees? Well, the Sadducees, they, they went out of existence shortly after the New Testament period. Uh, we don't really talk about them as much as the Pharisees. Uh, we will say that when somebody comes up with strict rules for us to follow, we will call those rules Pharisaical. Nobody uses the word Sadduceical. And I know that for a fact, because when I typed it into the computer, it was underlined in red. It doesn't exist. So who were they? We don't know a whole lot. We do know that they rejected most of the Old Testament, including all the prophets and the wisdom literature. They only accepted the first five books of the law. This made life a lot simpler. You lose some of the weird prophetic literature in that process. Um, but their piety seems to have been stagnated by that fact because when you only have the books of the law, it sort of places a, a primacy on religiosity and ceremonial observation, and it's not a really deep theology because when you turn a deaf ear to half of what God has to say, you fail to wrestle with most of what he's done in history since Moses. And it led to a very stale and archaic and very formal but powerless theology. But... Stale, archaic, and powerless was just how Rome liked Judaism. Uh, so the priesthood, which, like the Judean kingship, was controlled by Rome, um, they, they saw to it that the Sadducees had a stronghold on the religious power in Israel. So the high priest at this time was Caiaphas. He was a Sadducee, and so was his predecessor, and so was who came after him. Uh, the Sadducees were Rome's preferred religious leaders because their theology was stale and weak. They were a safe option. They could maintain the temple formalities, but they didn't believe any of this stuff enough to get rowdy, as it were. Uh, we know they tended to be wealthy, which may have been a natural byproduct of being favored by Rome. We also know they were a slim minority of the Jewish population. In reality, they were the rich elite, socially and politically influential, and they didn't really believe most of what the average Jew believed. So it would be like putting all the churches in America under the power of I don't know, like the Episcopalians or something like that. I mean, sure, they have nice buildings, but what do they believe in anyway? I mean, you know, they won't cause any trouble. Uh, people as cynical as the Sadducees would never be a threat. They have no ideology worth getting excited over, much less dying for it. I apologize to any Episcopalians. That was just a little throwaway comment. 
Um, hence the cynical, mocking tone of their question for Jesus. Because you have to understand, they have nothing but utter contempt for Jesus. He is charismatic, passionate, humble, and believes God's word. In other words, he's everything they're not. He's also embarrassing. He's like a backwater hick preacher who takes his Bible too seriously. They consider him silly and ignorant, and their question shows as much. But in spite of all that, their question does lead to other questions, and the way Jesus handles the question, as always, uh, gives them more than they asked for, and it proves very instructive to us. So the challenge is the Sadducees are talking about the concept of what was called leverate marriage. Uh, it was a common practice in the ancient world. It's still practiced in some areas of the world today. And it was provided for in the Mosaic Law. In Deuteronomy 25, you can read the details. Uh, but the basic idea was designed to protect widows in ancient Israel. If a woman's husband died and she was left childless, she had no protection. This was an agrarian culture. And without a husband or son to till the earth or to inherit it, a widow was left extremely vulnerable. And you can see that by reading the book of Ruth. Uh, for example, because when Naomi lost her husband and her son, she really had nothing, and that's partly why Ruth's choice to follow her anyway was so remarkable. Um, so God provided leverate marriage as one way to help desperate widows. It does not compute with modern sensibilities. I will acknowledge that. I'm thankfully off the hook. Mike has three boys, so I don't think I have to worry about it, but um, it, we do need to be careful that when we read the Bible, we have to read it in its own context and not the sort of postmodern lens. Uh, leverate marriage is not the ideal. It's a sign that God has a heart for widows, and he has a concern to protect them. Now, the Sadducees reject the concept of the resurrection, as is mentioned in verse 27. Now, some of the best pictures of the resurrection are found in the Old Testament. Both Elijah and Elisha raised people from the dead. Job spoke of seeing God after death. Several psalms strongly suggest resurrection. Isaiah talks of it multiple times, sometimes concerning the Messiah, and other times more broadly. Isaiah 26.19 says, But your dead will live. Their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust, wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. Sounds pretty resurrection there, uh, Ezekiel had his valley of dry bones. That's a beautiful picture of resurrection. But the problem was that none of these great resurrection passages are found in the Torah. The first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I can still do that. But that's all that the Sadducees accepted. And it's unclear what the Sadducees did expect at death then. And if we judge by their question, it seems as though they believe either that the afterlife will be completely ethereal and that we will not have bodies, or that there might not be an afterlife. This is more likely, probably, because Luke tells us later in Acts 23 that they also denied the existence of the spiritual world. Real hopeful, huh? Hence the question is meant to highlight for them what they see as the silliness of this whole thing. But there is a real concern not for Bill and Susie of the uh, original story I told, but for some of us. You know, in a way, while the motives of the Sadducees are bad, the question is not irrelevant because, well, look at the, I, I only have one wife, uh, and God willing, it will stay that way. But I've often considered the question, especially in light of this passage, what will be our status in the hereafter? After decades of wedded bliss, will our reunion be a bland, hey, nice to see you? Now, 
I, I tend to assume I'm going to go first, what with my stress level and lack of caution. Um, and I like to think that George's first impulse when she gets there will be to rush to me and kiss me. And then I think, like, are people going to frown on that? Um, uh, uh, guys, <laughs> there's no PDA in heaven. We don't do that there. Um, and it seems a bit disappointing, you know, because we made our wedding vows, and we like to think of it as quite permanent. You know, Randy Travis didn't write until one of us dies, amen. He wrote forever and ever, amen, right? So then Jesus comes along and perhaps unexpectedly tells us that no, marriage is not forever. That is why your vows say until death do us part. It makes lousy song lyrics, but it's excellent theology. So the real question beneath the sarcasm is, how will our earthly relationships carry over into eternity? And I can't answer that definitively. I can only say for sure that our marriages will not, apparently. So should we be bothered by that? Some of you have already answered that question with a hearty no. Um, I, I can answer with a definitive no. The promise of heaven is Jesus and to be with him for eternity. And there will be no tears or regrets in heaven. Paul tells us in Romans 8 that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. If our sufferings can't be compared to the coming glory, I can only imagine that our present joys and pleasures will be surpassed by far in eternity. Not even comparable, as Paul would say. And that means that the union and bond that you share with your spouse or your children or your friends or your parents cannot compare to the bond that you will share in eternity. Even without marriage and sex, you will be closer to your spouse in eternity than you ever were on earth. If they are in Christ, you will enjoy unbroken fellowship with them and with everyone else who is there. And the funny thing is there will be no jealousy because we will all be Christ's and he will be ours. Now, we can't fathom that completely, and that's okay. But we do need to remember not to project our earthly realities onto eternal realities. The good things here are only a foretaste, and the bad things will fade in its light. So there's no marriage in heaven. But Jesus can't help adding this little zinger in verse 36. They cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels. That's great. It's a needling answer to a needling question. Jesus denies here the very legitimacy of their question and explains that those who God will resurrect will be equal to angels. This is a great response in large part because the Sadducees also denied the existence of angels. But Jesus refuses to accept that premise. He doesn't back down and assume the truth of their assumptions. He states the biblical truth and does so without shame. He basically says she won't be married to any of them. She'll be like those angels you guys don't acknowledge. You can't understand eternity because you don't even understand the present spiritual reality. Now, why bring up angels specifically? It's not because we will become angels. That's Hollywood theology. Your deceased loved ones are no more angels than I am. But Luke clarifies that we will be like them in that we will not die. See, in this life, um, we procreate. We have kids for many reasons. Uh, most of mine are here today because they were happy accidents, as Bob Ross might call them. Um, 
but we, we welcomed them and we were excited about the idea, partly because, you know, there's a lot of things. You, you, I want to keep my name going, you know, and, uh, and I want to replace myself. I think statistically we all have to have like 2.1 children or something like that to statistically replace we were We rounded up and that's okay. Um, uh, and, and you do it also, to, to, you know, because I want somebody to take care of me when I'm a miserable old man. I'm a miserable enough young man. Um, and, and, you know, I have five daughters. That's perfect. Only one of them has to have compassion enough to deal with me. Um, Shakespeare argued that you should do it because, especially if you're a beautiful woman, you have an obligation to have children and pass that beauty on and not just waste it. That was a Shakespearean argument. I kind of like that. Um, but in any event, uh, what this seems to uh, imply that the story here is that what, what Jesus is getting at is that marriage and sex won't be necessary to sustain humanity in eternity because we'll be immortal. And what that means is our beauty will not fade, and old age will not render us weak, and sickness will no longer rob us of livelihood. We will not, like their hypothetical widow, need sons or husbands to sustain us. Nor will companionship be a concern because loneliness too will be abolished. If we are immortal, procreation becomes obsolete. Now, having denied the legitimacy of their question, Jesus pivots and completely destroys the underlying assumptions of the whole story. Getting to the root of the disagreement, he says, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he called the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Now, Jesus has refuted their challenge, and now he offers a refutation of their entire school of thought. He gets down to their level, in a sense, using their own scripture against them. In essence, Jesus says, your question is ridiculous from the outset, but here's your answer. And by the way, the only thing worse than your question is your entire way of thinking. And then he proceeds to exegete a specific passage from Exodus, and he doesn't concede ground on the rest of scriptures, but he uses their own text to condemn them. He essentially says, I don't even need the rest of the Old Testament to prove how foolish you are because even Moses testifies against you. A couple of things to notice here. First of all, a careful reading of Scripture is critical. I want you to see that Jesus' entire argument hinges on the conjugation of a single verb, to be. God says in Exodus 3, 6, that I am the God of your father. It isn't that God was the God of our fathers, but that he is the God of our fathers. This is not something we would pick up in a casual reading of the burning bush passage, but Jesus puts the full weight of his argument on it. Grammar matters in scripture. Theologians use the phrase plenary inspiration, which just means that the very words, not just the broad concepts of Scripture, are God-breathed. And let's just say that this passage seems to indicate that Jesus adheres to the plenary inspiration of Scripture, that the words matter, which is partly why I tend to avoid paraphrases when I'm speaking. I don't use the message of the New Living Translation when I preach, because I think there's a lot to be learned from direct translations. I want you to also notice that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive. That's huge. The promise of the resurrection is so certain that Jesus treats it as a fait accompli. 
what Jesus is affirming here is that all who are dead in Christ, dating from Adam to today, are in fact alive, that they are counted among the living. They are not gone forever. Death is not annihilation. Their souls did not die when their bodies did. And what that means is that all the saints in Scripture and all the church fathers and all the reformers and the faithful throughout the generations and your believing friends and loved ones who are now in their graves and your heroes of the faith, even those you've recently buried, your moms and dads, they are not merely alive in our thoughts and memories like a bad Hallmark card. The resurrection is their promise in him, and in Christ they are actually alive, and God is still their God. There's a lot of hope in this passage. I also want you to notice that good theology matters to Jesus. And I know that's like a no-brainer. But you may have noticed that Jesus spends much more time debating the Pharisees. In fact, this is the only time that Luke mentions the Sadducees at all outside of the book of Acts. Matthew mentions them a lot more. I think that's because he was writing to Jews and perhaps he felt the need to set Jesus apart from Jewish schools of thought. But this little event was momentous enough that it gets mentioned in all the synoptic gospels meaning Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, the Pharisees were much more orthodox than the Sadducees. They read and believe the entire Old Testament, including the prophets. They affirm the existence of angels, the spiritual realm, and the resurrection. In fact, they were what we might have seen as the conservative defenders of the true Jewish faith. In an age where unbelief ruled the political world in the form of Rome, as well as the religious world in the form of the Sadducees, the Pharisees would seem like the bastion of truth. So it's surprising, in a sense, how much time Jesus spends attacking them. You almost get the impression that they're close enough to the truth that Jesus almost resents them for not being a little closer. As if they have the truth in front of them, but refuse to live it. They make the faith into something legalistic, and they miss the heart of God. Now, there were some prominent Pharisees who did embrace Jesus. Nicodemus is probably the most prominent name, but they're relatively few. Generally, he was completely at odds with them. And you start to get the feeling that he's more concerned with the errors and attitudes of the Pharisees than he is with the more blatant heresy of the Sadducees. And you might start to think he cares more about right practice than right doctrine, uh, and that false doctrine bothers him less than legalism. And this story stands out in part because it proves that doctrine also matters a great deal to Jesus. It shows that he's not shy about engaging the unbelieving heresy of his day, and that while he has little affection for Pharisees, he doesn't give the Sadducees a pass. This is why some of the scribes, who were Pharisees, in spite of their hostility to Jesus, they can't help themselves in their response. They're all, teacher, you have spoken well. Some people seem to think, and some people I've met uh, within the church, that since Jesus spent so much time fighting the Pharisees, that Christians today would do best to model that by criticizing the believing church first and foremost for its various failings, because the thinking is that the church should know better. So we spend extra time criticizing what we might call the sort of evangelical wing of the church. And there is some legitimacy to that. Heaven knows uh, the church must be faithful, and we should always be ready to call it to account. The believing church often deserves much criticism for its failings, and that's good to focus on that. However, I believe this exchange shows that we must also be ready to engage unbelief and heresy as well, especially when it comes from people who claim to be Christians. Even when you wouldn't expect them to know any better, because false theology always leads to hopelessness. 
Now, the Sadducees were a well-established heretical group masquerading as pious believers. And you know what? So were the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Christian scientists and the Quakers and those new church Swedenborgian guys up there in Brynathen and the Unitarians. And there's many mainstream denominations that aren't much better along with much of Trinity Broadcasting Network. Many have, on paper or in practice, abandoned central tenets of the faith. We should be prepared to respond to those heresies as they come up and be ready to criticize evangelicals for their failure to do the faith. If they're being legalistic, if we are being self-righteous or uncharitable, that needs to be addressed too. But we must not give other self-identifying Christians a pass on falsehood. You can't just love people into the kingdom while they keep believing lies because the truth matters. Jesus says so. Now, Jesus is showing us how to handle unbelievers in their attacks, especially when they hide behind a pious exterior. He doesn't let it go. He doesn't allow them to define the terms of debate, nor does he settle for arguing about the surface issue. He gets into the underlying problems with the entire philosophy. Now, there's an interesting pair of verses in Proverbs that I want to read really quickly. Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Okay. That would seem to be a contradiction. I like to think that the Bible doesn't contradict itself, but it is a rather confusing bit of advice, isn't it? Answer the fool, but don't answer him. Don't stoop to his level, but do. I used to think maybe the explanation was that you can never really win an argument with a fool because either you'll look stupid or he will stay stupid. So engaging him at all is rather risky. Now, typically, I think I end up applying one proverb or the other sort of selectively. I will usually ignore, like, arguments flare up on Facebook, and I think to myself, I'm not going to get into this. That's silly. And why take the bait? Why get in the mud? Why answer fools, right? But other times, I will try to use people's silly reasoning against them and try to demonstrate that they are inconsistent even with their own principles, and that usually takes the form of sarcasm. Uh, and I wait to see if people pick up on it. But I think that Jesus shows exactly how to apply both Proverbs in one response because he refuses to answer the Sadducees' folly on the question of the seven brothers, but he uses their folly against them by undermining them with their own scriptures. Thus he demonstrates how you can do the seemingly impossible. He knows how to answer them even though they aren't really looking for answers. No wonder they all shut up. You'll see next week that he actually starts picking fights because no one wants to question him anymore, so he starts picking on them. I would love to be such a precise debater and that quick on my feet. But Jesus was always a great debater. How could God incarnate be otherwise, right? He's been out debating everyone since his ministry started. The better question is why. Why do the Sadducees even start something with him? What makes them think they can get over on him? What compels them to walk up to Jesus and mock him in this way? And we could ask this of unbelievers we talk to on a regular basis. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, and if you've spent any time in academia especially, you've certainly met people who just can't help but make fun of you for your faith. They mock and caricature your beliefs. And I'm amazed at how well unbelievers know just a small handful of verses, like, let him who is without sin cast the first stone, or God helps those who help themselves. That's not actually in scripture, by the way. It's Benjamin Franklin. Um, judge not, lest ye be judged. That's every unbeliever's favorite verse. 
I always want to show them 1 Corinthians 2.15, you know, and say, hey, you know, the Bible also says, you know, Paul says the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. Just to mess with them and see what they'll say to that. Um, The attacks that they make are often shallow, and they can be demeaning and mocking, and their questions expect no answer most of the time. And some even come from supposedly religious people. Why do they do it? Why did the Sadducees do it? What compels anyone to mock the truth, to attack Jesus and try to make him look stupid? I think the answer to that, oddly enough, is found in the other accounts of this story, in Matthew and in Mark. Uh, Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Mark uh, puts it more as a question. Is this not the reason you are wrong? because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? They don't know scripture, and they don't know the power of God. They really don't know what, or rather who, they're messing with. They are mocking the promises of the gospel, the resurrection that is our hope in Christ. They can't grasp it because they don't know the Bible, and even if they did, they don't believe what little they know. If you don't know scripture, you can't know the mind of God. And if you know what scripture technically says, but do not believe what it says, then you don't know God's power, and you will not take him seriously. And Jesus calls us to seriousness. He wants us to know our Bibles, and he wants us to know God's power. The two go hand in hand. So don't be ignorant like the Sadducees. And then you might be ready to respond to the Sadducees of our day. And you may never be as good as Jesus. You may not always change minds, but the world is always going to be full of fools who don't know the scriptures or the power of God. But the world has no false gospel that offers more than the true gospel. So know God's word, know his power, and know his son who is the embodiment of them both. There is a resurrection coming, and Jesus proved it a few days after this interchange. So as Romans 10, 9 says, confess him as Lord, believe in his resurrection, and you will be saved. And he promises he will raise you up on the last day. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we do not know your word as well as we should, nor do we know your power as well as we'd like to. But Lord, we thank you that the resurrection is reality, no matter how it is mocked. We thank you for proving it. We thank you for going first and showing us the way so that we do not need to fear death. And we can look with certainty to the resurrection, Lord. Thank you for that. Encourage our hearts, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name.